I want to talk to you about men a little bit today. You know, I've noticed something about guys. Maybe you have too. Guys have a need to get away. Guys have something on the inside of them that just needs some space. Needs a break. I won't take too much time to argue it theologically. But I do think it started in Genesis. You know, the Bible says that God made Eve... Uh, out of the side of Adam there in the garden. But if you read Genesis 2 verse 8, it says that Adam was created outside of the garden and then he was placed in the garden. And I think there's something inside of all the men that just want to get back out there. You know, whether it's an escape, you know, for a hunting weekend or, or whatever, we, we just want to get out there and, and there's a, a need for space. It's this call to the wild. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and some of us are better at getting those retreats than others, but a lot of us, we're just so busy and so uh, driven by our schedule and everything else that we can't get out and get away. And so uh, we've created a safe space, a sanctuary, if you will, where we can at least feel like we've escaped for a little bit. We have a little space. Enter the man cave. Man land. The man space. The mansuary. The sanctuary that you come into. Where you just feel like you've got some space. Where you've got some room to be who you are. Might be in the den. It might be in the media room. It might be in the attic. It might be in the basement. It might be in the garage. Maybe it's the shed out behind the house, but it's your own personal solace. It's the sanctuary. It's your man cave, the place where you go to uh, not feel like you have any fear of upsetting the female sensibilities of decor and decorum. Say what you want. Act how you want. My cave, my rules. Exhibit A. Maybe you're a, a music-loving guy and you would love to have a man cave like this one up here. That's the music-lover man cave right there. He's got the studio suite, got the guitar collection. Why do you need that many guitars? Because I do. I just do. It doesn't have to make sense. Or maybe you're more of a car guy. Now, man, this is a, this is a nice man cave right here. Yeah. Not a, not a bad uh, feature in the middle. Of that man cave at all. But if that's your thing, you know, that's your dream man cave. Or, or maybe you're a, a sports nut and you would want a man cave that looked like this one. Yeah. Now, honestly, when I saw that man cave, I, I threw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> go, go, go Cowboys. Um, but if you're a sports fan, you might like a man cave like that. That'd be quite all right. Or, or maybe you're, you're an avid gun collector. And, and you might want a man cave that looks like this one. Now I gotta be honest, if you got a man cave like that, I'm praying for you. That's a little excessive. I don't think I could hang out in that man cave. Now, I'm not gonna make a, a, a debate for having a man cave. If that's an argument you got going on in your house, I am not gonna help you today. I'm sorry guys. That's not this. The ladies relax. If you've been fighting about your craft room turning into a, a man cave, it's, it's not going to happen on my watch today. 
But there is something about the way that God's designed men to come away. There's something about the way that God's intended us uh, that, that we need some space. Now, women need space too. I, I get that. But I've noticed when women want alone time, they usually want it together. <laughs> I mean, like when guys want to be alone, they actually mean alone. Like they're quite content to sit, you know, 20 feet up in a tree for hours on end in the freezing cold by themselves. So there's something that God does in the alone spaces in our lives. In fact, all through scripture, we see God redeeming moments of isolation in the lives of men. And we could really take all morning just looking at examples of those. But let me just mention a a couple of the highlights because we have a lot of ground to cover today. But the first one that comes to mind is Abraham, who God told him to go out of the tent and try to number the stars. He took a walk in the middle of the night through a meadow and God spoke to him about the promises and the plans that he had for his life. I think about Jacob who left his family and he crossed over the Jabbok River and he wrestled with God all night. He got up and he he went away and he got alone and God spoke to him. I think about Moses who the Bible says was out on the backside of a desert when he had an encounter with God. It was just him and God after 40 years and he saw that burning bush. I think about guys like Elijah, who was literally in a cave. He was hiding out. He went into a cave, but it was in that cave that he learned to discern the still, small voice of God. How many of you remember that story? God whispered to him in that cave. And in that conversation, God reminded him of his purpose and his plan. And he gave him steps to go to in the future. Over and over again, God speaks to men when they get alone in a quiet space. I think of David. I mean, David, all the psalms that he wrote out there, just him and the sheep. It was out there in the fields all by himself with the animals that the anointing of God came to him and he was called to be the king. And then years later, it was in a cave where he was running for his life. He was a, a he was a, a criminal, according to the politics of the day. He was running from King Saul. And yet it was in a cave that God confirmed his call on his life again. He reminded him of his purpose. It was in that cave that that David refocused and he began to rally around him some men that would help him get to where God wanted him to go. Think about guys in the New Testament like John the Baptist. He was out there wearing camel's hair and eating, eating wild honey and locusts and just out there. He's the voice of one called in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus, Matthew tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the enemy over and over and over again. We see this pattern. And in every one of their stories, what happens is they go away, they hear from God, they get a confirmation on the plan and the purpose of God for their life, and then they come back and they execute the plan. But the one thing that's common in all their stories and the reason that we know their story is because... They came back. They, they came back from their man cave. And like everything else in our lives, the enemy loves to twist and distort and pervert the plan and purpose of God. And that's where I'm headed today in this message. Because Satan wants you to stay in the man cave. Satan wants us men to be emotionally and relationally and Socially and especially spiritually 
disconnected and uninvolved in our families, in our spouses, in our children, with other men in the church. He wants us to be cut off. He wants us to close in. He wants us to go into hiding. I mean, come on, guys, let's be honest. It's a lot easier to sit and watch other men compete at an event that doesn't really matter on a 50-inch HD TV. That's a lot easier to do than to actually get up and go out and fight a battle that God's called you to fight that you know has eternal consequences. It's a lot easier to just watch it played out on the big screen. Satan wants you to stay in the cave, guys. In fact, Satan wants your cave to become a grave where every day the plan and the purpose of God dies a little bit more. It was Albert Schweitzer that said this. He said, the tragedy of life is what dies inside a man while he lives. And I just had the sense coming into this weekend that maybe that describes some of the men in this room today. That you're dying even while you live. That there's something of the purpose of God that's withering on the vine. You know, from the time I was three years old till the age of 18... I spent 25% of every year in wrestling season. It was a big deal in my family. And sometimes those weekend tournaments got long. And as a kid, honestly, sometimes I, I lost interest. And I, my dad, he, he was coaching me from the time I was three all the way through. And, and he had watched me wrestle hundreds of times in practice and, and in meets. And there was many times where I would come off the mat... And he knew, I mean, he knew as soon as we started, my head wasn't in it. I wasn't focused. I wasn't doing what I knew to do. And in those moments, he said something to me many times. He said, I'm not mad that you lost. I'm upset because you beat yourself. He knew that my head wasn't in it. I wasn't doing everything I was qualified to do, everything I had trained to do. He knew I had beat myself. Listen, men, when, when you check out mentally, when you check out emotionally and spiritually on the things that God's called you to do, on the battles that He's called you to fight, literally, it's like forfeiting the battle before it ever begins. You're just giving in. You're conceding defeat to the enemy. It was Edmund Burke that said, the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that's what happens when we go into a cave. When men of God shut down. And if we're honest, we're just like our father. I don't mean your dad. And I don't mean my dad. I mean all the way back in Genesis. When you look at Adam, you see that we are a chip off the old block. I want you to go with me in the Bible to Genesis. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you can pray with your eyes open, I want to pray. Father, thank you for this word that you've put in my heart today. Thank you for each of the men, whether they're biological fathers adoptive fathers, godfathers, or maybe they just carry the, the reflection of the Father God 
And you've called them to be spiritual leaders in their church, in their community. God, let this word land on every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3. This is a story that a lot of guys will be quick to point out. This is the, the temptation, the eating of the forbidden fruit. A lot of guys are quick to point out it was the woman. She was the first one to eat the fruit. We all know that, right? I mean, we're going here on Father's Day. It was the woman that was deceived by the devil. It was the woman who ate the fruit first, right? But I got a question when I look at this text today. Where was Adam? I mean, I mean, really, where was Adam? Look at it with me. Verse 1, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Here's the moment. Verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. But my question again, where was Adam? Look at the next part of that verse. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. He was there. He, he was right there. If you, if you look at the original text in the Hebrew, it means elbow to elbow. He was right there with her through the whole conversation. I mean, he wasn't like on the other side of the garden. He wasn't out like naming animals or anything. He has no alibi. And you know what he does? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why isn't Adam speaking up? Why isn't Adam saying, hey, 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 don't get, cut your eyes, divert your eyes, don't be looking at that tree. Why isn't Adam taking spiritual authority in this moment? Why isn't he leading? Why isn't he protecting Eve? Why doesn't he fight the enemy? And why don't we chip off the old block? His silence is deafening. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't lead. The first man gave in to paralysis. He denied his, his very nature. He went, he went passive in that moment. And, and every man after him, every one of us in here, we've done the same thing. We follow in his footsteps. Daily, we miss the opportunities to step up, to lead, to be the men that God's called us to be. We don't take the risk. We don't step into the fight. We don't rescue Eve, we cave. We go into the cave. Adam's original sin was not eating the forbidden fruit. The original sin was not fighting. God's called us as men to do something 
to lead our families, to lead the church, to fight against the enemy. I read a statistic this week that was pretty astounding. Did you know that if a child is the first person in a household to become a Christian, there is a 3.5% probability that everyone in that household will follow. If the mother is the first to become a Christian, there is a 17% probability that everyone in the house will follow. But listen to this. If the father is the first one, if the father follows God, if the father gives it all to Jesus and becomes a Christian, there is a 93% probability that his whole family is going to follow him. Now, we don't need a statistic to tell us that because truth be told, we know it. It's something that God has wired in us from creation. That men are called to lead their families, to lead spiritually, to lead by example. I'm telling you, if if the men would get on fire for God, this place would be set ablaze with revival. Whole communities would be changed radically. It's not because we're better. It's not a superiority thing. It's... It's an anointing thing. It's something that God has called us uniquely to do. And while there's all kinds of virtues and characteristics that the woman defines and reflects in the image of God, there's something about manhood. God's put His mark on us and He's called us to lead and not to cave. We spent several weeks back in the spring talking about the seven words That Jesus spoke from the cross. Those last words. Those significant monumental statements. There's something about last words that are are prophetic. They they speak about uh, desire. They speak about what can be, what should be, what mattered most. And when it came to the last words in the Old Testament, God gave them to a prophet named Malachi. He gave him the last word. And I want to read the last word in the Old Testament. Before... Before we get to 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. Before you get to that blank page, three quarters of the way through your Bible. Malachi makes a statement. And his last words are a prophecy. And and there are more than that. They're a key to the blessing of God. It's almost as if with the final statement in the Old Testament, God reveals this is what needs to happen. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And I want to read it out of the New King James Version because I think it better represents the original text in this case. Here's what it says. Last verse of the Old Testament. And He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Prophetically, God's saying, if men don't turn their heart back to their families, if they don't take their position of leadership, there's going to be a curse upon the people. There's going to be a curse upon the land. There's something that God is calling us to do. He wants us to come out of the cave. So I want to just give you quickly five actions that I think every man ought to take. Now, if you're a lady here today, and I think the majority in the house is 
female. These are actions that anybody can take. So this is for you as well. But these are five actions that I think every man is supposed to take. Number one, step up. Step up. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, there's a pretty awesome story. What's happening in 2 Samuel 10 is the king of the Ammonites had been a friend to King David. But the Ammonite king died. And so what David did is he sent a delegation of his soldiers to show sympathy to the king's son. They went to show sympathy to represent the king. But when they got there, the Ammonite king's son didn't think they were there with a righteous cause. In fact, his name's Hanun. He thought that they were actually there to spy out the land so that they could then attack them. You know what I've noticed? A lot of times when people see the bad in others all the time, it's actually because they're projecting on them what's in their own heart. He was the kind of guy that would have sent a delegation and said, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, and assessed the land and spied out the land and planned an attack. And so he just assumed that's what David was going to do. And so then, because he wants to not look weak, because he doesn't want to look intimidated, this young man named Hanan displays this shallow, superficial, macho bravado that's equivalent to a bully on a playground. And here's what it does. If you've never seen this verse before, it's going to blow your mind. Verse 4, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Chapter 10. It says, So Hanun seized David's envoy. He shaved off half of each man's beard. And he cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. Sounds like something you'd read in a a fraternity. Like initiations. He shaves off half of their beards. And he cuts the back of their robe off, exposing them. He humiliates these men. Putting on this false sense of masculinity. And so, David hears about it. And when Hanun realizes he's poked the bear, the story says that he went out and he hired 33,000 soldiers to defend him. He knew he messed up. There's something that that David does in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. Talking about stepping up. Listen to these words in verse 12 of that chapter. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in His sight. I love the way the American Standard Version puts this verse. It says, be of good courage and let us play the man for our people. That's what God's looking for. Somebody that will play the man For their people. Somebody that will step up in the midst of adversity. You know, Adam could have rescued Eve. He was right there. But he forfeited before the match was even played out. He wasn't focused on his assignment. You know, I think one of the most sad commentaries of the people of God 
in all of Scripture is in Ezekiel chapter 22. This is a sad commentary that describes what was happening in this particular generation. And the setting for the verse I'm about to show you is that God is describing the sins of all of Jerusalem. He's telling Ezekiel all the horrible things they've done. But then he says this, and this is a sad commentary. Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. God says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. Nobody to step up. Nobody to just... Pray on behalf of the people. Nobody to stand for righteousness. I was looking for somebody. I didn't want to pour out my wrath. I didn't want to pour out my judgment. I looked and I couldn't find anybody. God is looking today in the church for a man. Somebody that will stand up. Somebody that will show up a little early and intercede and pray. Somebody that will lead by example. Somebody that will do the, the hard plowing and the heavy lifting. He's looking for somebody that will... Step up and lead their family to worship God. Second thing is this. Step up, but also speak out. Speak out. April 16th, 1963. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from a Birmingham, Alabama jail cell. Challenging the white clergy to step up and speak out about the issues of racial discrimination. Injustice anywhere, Dr. King warned, is a threat to justice everywhere. Dr. King was rebuking their silence. When we fail to use our voice, we lose it. And nothing says more than silence. And nothing speaks louder than silence. So Dr. King accused the white church of being more cautious than courageous. Remaining silent behind, quote, the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Wow, what a thought. We will have to repent in this generation. Not merely for the hateful words of bad people, warned Dr. King. But for the appalling silence of good people. Speak out. We need moral courage, men, to do the right thing. To say what needs to be said, even if it's not politically correct. To speak the truth. We don't have to be hostile. We don't have to be ugly. We don't have to be berating. But we have to speak the truth in love. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 15, But in your heart, revere Christ as the Lord. Always be prepared. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now it's a life group weekend and we had our life group last night. Some of you are meeting today. But we got into a conversation about a story in John chapter 8. Where Jesus is there and the religious leaders took a woman... They said they caught her in the act of adultery. Now, how they caught her, we don't know that part. But they caught her. It was a setup. 
These men had drug her out before these people. And the Bible says clearly in John chapter 8 that this was a trap. They were trying to trap Jesus. And so they said to Jesus, you know, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. What do you say? Because they knew Jesus was full of compassion and mercy. And so if he said, forgive her, then they would have said, oh, you're breaking the law of Moses. But if he would have said, stone her, then all of a sudden he wouldn't have been preaching a message of grace and, and forgiveness. And so they're trying to trap Jesus in this moment. And he says to them, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And one at a time, the older men first started laying their stones down as they realized they, they didn't have a stone to throw. And then the younger men, who were full of passion and spit and vigor and ready to stone somebody, realized they were guilty too. This is a moment, though, where Jesus perfectly balances speaking the truth with love. I'm not talking about being hateful. I'm not talking about pointing out everybody's faults and trying to play Holy Spirit and tell everybody how they need to fix their life. But we've got to speak out. We've got to speak the truth. We can't have this this facade of the love of God that totally exempts the the righteousness of God and and the holiness of God and the call of God to purity. Somebody has to speak the truth. And in this moment, Jesus does exactly that. He's drawing in the sand and he looks up and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one here, sir. And then here's, here's the love. Neither do I condemn you. She's still, she's still filthy. She's probably half-dressed, if dressed at all. Maybe she's got nothing on but a bed sheet. Here she is, a woman caught in the act of adultery. She's done nothing good. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And honestly, that, that's a message that, that the world loves the church to preach. People that don't even go to church can quote that verse. Let the one without sin cast the first stone. How do they know that verse? Right? They know that one and they know the one in John 7. Judge not lest you be judged. They never read that before. They, you know, but here's the balance. Here's the, because we can't just say, oh, let's just love her. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. We don't condemn anybody. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. He called it what it was. Go and leave your life of sin. That takes courage. It takes love first. He didn't say to her, you're a sinner. You need to change your ways and I won't condemn you. No, no. He he said, I love you right now the way you are. I love you. I, I don't condemn you. But I love you too much to see you stay that way. Leave your life of sin. That takes courage to not only step up, but to speak out. Here's the third thing. We need men to stand strong. Stand strong. Romans 12, verse 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, reality TV is a staple in our culture today. But it was a, it was a revolutionary idea in 1948 when the show Candid Camera first came out. What was amazing about the show is not only was it funny, but it caught people in the act of just being themselves. And it was incredible to be able to watch it. It was fascinating to see a, a study of the human psyche. How people respond naturally on camera when they don't know they're on camera to situations. There was one episode that was called Face the Rear. 
And the way they set it up is there was a hidden camera as always and, and an unsuspecting person stepped in to an elevator. And as they walked in the elevator, naturally they turned and, and they faced the front. But after they walked in, three actors came in and they stood, but they all faced the rear. And you're watching this person's face. Is there, they're looking at everybody else and they're, they're, should I face forward? Should I face backwards? Am I doing it wrong? I thought we always got in the elevator and faced the door. And they don't know. And then what would happen is a fourth actor would come in and they would just walk in and let the doors close behind him. And they would just stand there in front of him. And you see this person's face and, and every time what would happen is they would go, That's a picture of of what it looks like to be conformed to the pattern of the world. Jesus said, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stand strong. Face the front. When everybody else says, you know what, we're doing a new thing. It's 21st century. We face back now. That scripture doesn't apply anymore. That's old-fashioned. We all go the other direction now. Somebody's got to go against the grain. Somebody's got to be a man of God. Somebody's got to stand strong and face the front. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You're going to like this verse. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to his son Solomon. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong and act like a man. What good counsel from a father to a son. Be strong and act like a man. Unless you think he's talking about be a tough guy, don't show emotion, get up, wipe it off, spit on it, it'll be okay, go kill a deer. He's not talking about any of that. Because in the next couple of verses there in in 1 Kings, he goes on to say, Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to Him and keep His decrees and commands. You know the way we stand strong? By standing on the Word. That's That's what David was telling his son. Stand on the Word of God. Know the decrees. Know what God wants for you. And by the way, if you'll do that, the promise that God gave me will be fulfilled. And the promise that David had in his vision as he faced eternity was that he would never cease to have an heir on the throne. He said, Solomon, it's up to you. Because the plan and purpose of God is bigger than my lifetime. And by the way, it's the same for you, man. You ought to be living for something that's going to outlive you. He said, Solomon, for me to see God do everything he told me he would do, you got you got to act like a man. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to stand on the Word of God. Stand on the Word of God. Stand on the truth of God. That's why we need to be faithful to God's house. The Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given gifts to the church. He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers... He's given us this for a reason. It says in verse 12, to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature to act like men, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying this is the reason that that we, we gave you the body of Christ. This is the reason that we gave you spiritual leaders. This is why we need to be faithful to God's house. Because when we come together, we grow in faith and in unity and in the knowledge of God. And then verse 14 says this, Then, if we'll do that, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. I thank God for babies in the church. I don't ever want to see this church without a full nursery. That's where we're headed. That's our, that's our legacy. But we need men. And what we don't need is infants in here. We need the infants. Now, if you've got a baby with you, don't get nervous. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Talking spiritually. Spiritually. Thank God that there are people that are new in the faith. Thank God that there are people that, that haven't been doing this very long. And, and, and they, they need to be helped along and... But God forbid that all the men in the church are, are infants. We're called to stand strong. And the way we do it is by standing on the word. Fourth thing is this, quickly. Stay humble. Stay humble. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because this ought to motivate you. God opposes the proud, but He shows favor on the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He, in due time, will lift you up. It doesn't just say that you don't get the blessing of God if you're prideful. It says that God actually lines up on defense against you. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. I spoke to the students, the teenagers, on Thursday about a bucket theology. You know, everybody has a bucket theology. Pilate had a bucket theology. You remember when they brought Jesus on trial before him? And they, they said, what should we do with this man? And Pilate called for a bucket. And he washed his hands in that bucket. And he said, he is not my responsibility. And a lot of people, that's their bucket theology. Well, let somebody else do it. Not up to me. Let, let somebody else take care of that. Let, let, the, let the teachers deal with that. that it's not my job. Let, let the youth pastor work that stuff out. Not, not my job. A bucket theology that always wants to pass the buck and always wants to expect somebody else to do it. That was Pilate's bucket theology, but Jesus had a bucket theology too. And he demonstrated it on the night that he was going to be arrested. When all the disciples filled into the upper room, everybody was getting ready to enjoy the feast. And the custom of the day was that there would be a servant in the house who would wash everybody's feet, who were caked with the red clay of the, ro of the roads in the Middle East. They would clean everybody's feet before dinner. And if there wasn't a servant in the house, then one of the early guests to arrive were supposed to take on that job. And one at a time, all the disciples, they walk into the room and they look around, no servants here tonight. And Peter looks over at Bartholomew and he's like, well, I'm not the bucket guy. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the like three, you know, Peter, James and John. 
Surely I'm not going to wash people's feet. You know, and Andrew walks in. He's like, well, you wouldn't even know Jesus if I didn't tell you about him. So I'm not the bucket guy. And one at a time, all 12 disciples, they go in and they sit down, assuming somebody else is going to be the servant. And then Jesus walks in the room. Here's his bucket theology. Jesus takes the bucket and the towel. And he begins to wash their feet. And he says to them in John 13, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. What's your bucket theology like, men? Are you proud? Do you assume that that job's beneath me? What's your bucket theology like in the house? Oh man, I gotta move on. It's late. Now I'm picking on folks and y'all are gonna get mad at me. By the way, let me stop and tell you guys, we've got root beer and brats waiting for you after the service. Love me. I love you, but honestly, honestly, you don't have to nod at me and I hope your wife doesn't elbow you, but what's your bucket theology like at home? What's it like in the workplace? What's it like in the church? Do you come in and see the job and assume it's somebody else's? Do you have a bucket theology like, like Pilate that says, it's not my responsibility? We've got to step up. We've got to speak out. We've got to stand strong. The way to stand strong is to stand on the word. We gotta stay humble. And the last, the last one is this. We gotta serve the king. Serve the king. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. Every one of us can, can relate to this reality that you, you're being pulled on in a thousand different directions. Everything wants to be priority. And everybody wants to make their emergency your crisis. And there's a thousand things that wants to be preeminent in your heart and in your mind. But Jesus gave us this, this vest button principle of seek first the kingdom. It's, it's a vest button principle. In other words, if you get the top button right, the rest of them tend to fall in place. And he was saying, seek first the kingdom. Make it about God first. All of us, and I'm not going to go down... Guilt trip road, but all of us, we've gotten our priorities out of whack. All of us have. We, we, don't, we don't love our spouses the way that we should. We don't spend enough time with our kids the way we should. We, we, we abandon the word of God in our devotion life. Sometimes we, we're worried about climbing a corporate ladder more than we are climbing towards heaven. We, we've all been there. We've all done that before. I'm just going to tell you, we've got to get our priorities right. We've got to serve the king. God wants to be pursued. He wants to be pursued. He, wa- he doesn't need you. He doesn't need my worship this morning. He wants it. It's the heart of God to want to be pursued. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me if... You seek me with all of your heart. It was A.W. Tozer who said this. God waits to be wanted. 
He waits to be wanted. That's what he was longing for this morning as we were getting our coffee and filtering into the sanctuary. He's there on the balconies of heaven. He's waiting to be wanted. He's looked forward to this day all week. For some of you, weeks maybe, he's waited to be wanted. But but can I just tell you, and you know this, but the truth is, men, so is your wife. She reflects the image of God in that she waits to be wanted. And I thought it was fascinating. I read something this week about Aiden Tozer, A.W. Tozer, incredible preacher. Made that statement that I just read you. God waits to be wanted. He understood that about the heart of God. But for some reason, somehow his priorities were out of a line and he didn't understand it about his wife. And there's a sad line in the biography of A.W. Tozer. And it says that when he died, his wife Ada remarried. Several years into her second marriage, a friend asked Ada to describe the difference between her first husband and her second husband, her first marriage and her second marriage. I've never been happier in my life, said Ada. And here was her synopsis. She said, Aiden. Love Jesus Christ. But Leonard Odom loves me. How sad. Let's do both, men. Let's do both. Let's get our priorities right. Let's serve the king. Listen, the best thing you can do for your wife, the best thing you can do for your children, we'll go farther than that. We'll say for every relationship that you have, the best thing you can do is fall madly in love with Jesus. I mean, I could have have given you seven principles for how to be a godly husband. I could give you practical steps. But I'm going to be honest. When when you're arguing over whose turn it was to do the dishes, you're not going to think about my seven principles. You're going to need the Holy Spirit of God to rise up on the inside of you to call for the right bucket in that moment. You need the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. I hope, I hope you'll indulge me, men. Here, here's what's on my heart today. I want to pray for you. Not pray at you. I want to pray with you. And I want to ask everybody in this church if you'd stand with me. And men, if you would be so bold, would you come and just join me around the front so that we can, we can pray over you at the close of this service? Young and old, every man that's able. If you're a teenager, young man here, man, come on up. Come with us. I just want all of us as men to just To just fill the front of this room together. And stand before the Lord for a moment. I want to pray for you. You remember in Genesis what happened. After. Adam forfeited the fight. Took the fruit and ate it. You remember what happened? The Bible says immediately. They felt shame. They they realized their nakedness. And then God comes walking through the garden. Where are you, Adam? Now, if I was scripting this for the silver screen, I I would have Adam frantically trying to hide behind some tiny little bush. Like something prickly, like a holly bush or something. Because shame is painful. 
And I I would want to communicate that. And all of a sudden, he hears the footsteps like a deer through the woods after you've been sitting there for five hours. Your your senses are heightened. He hears a familiar gait. Jesus, God in the flesh, is coming through the garden. He sees his shadow and he hunkers down and the shadow passes by. And it, go, and it keeps going. And he thinks, I'm in the clear. And right before he comes out, he hears a voice right behind him say, Where are you, Adam? Shivers just go down his spine. He says, I was hiding. I was hiding. Because he blew it. And we're a chip off the old block. A lot of us, we're hiding. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want people to know our vulnerability. We keep a tight lip, a stiff back. We don't show emotions. I'm not trying to guilt you guys. I, I, I live in this world with you. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm flesh. I fail. When's the last time your wife saw you cry? When's the last time your children saw your heart break for the things that breaks the heart of God? The tendency in all of us is to to hide. God is calling us to come out of the cave. To be men. To be men. And he who calls you, equips you. And he qualifies you. There is no B team. There is no second string. You're it. You're the hope for the world. Think about that. Jesus didn't have a plan B. When he empowered those 12 disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're the hope of the world. It's time to lead. I want to pray for you. Father God, I thank you for these men. God, they they are leaders in their own right, each and every one of them. God, I pray today though for something more than will. Something more than tenacity. Something more than a drive that says I'm going to try. God, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon each and every man in this place today. Lord, the same way that you brought Adam out from the shadows and you clothed him, the Word says that you sacrificed an animal. Blood was shed to demonstrate your love in the garden and you gave him better garments. You gave him his dignity. You restored his calling and he went out from that place to subdue the earth. God, thank you that it wasn't the only time you shed blood to cover us. God, on the cross, we look to Jesus, who was the Lamb of God, who shed his blood for us. And you cover us, you clothe us where there was shame. Now there is grace and forgiveness and healing and redemption. God, where we forfeited the fight before, you empower us by your Spirit to take our stand in the days of evil. Put on the armor of God and to lead the charge. To act like men. God, I pray for these men today. That they would feel a steel, a resolve, a strength in their spirit, man. To do what you've called them to do and to be who you've called them to be. God bless each and every one of these men and those that they lead in Jesus' name.
And everybody said amen. Amen.